The following podcast contains explicit language. This is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and oh, what is that? Oh, it's the sands of time. We're listening to Kismet. That's 1953. I like it very much. I sense that a lot of people who like this kind of music don't care much about Kismet, but it's one of my favorite things in the world. And listen to the sands of time. This is Richard Kiley singing. Why am I playing that? Because to me, in a very kitschy way, that says what we call the Middle East. And, you know, let's start with the alphabet. Not intuitive, writing with an alphabet, as intuitive as it seems to us, because we grew up using one. Most of us who are here, I imagine, would say that. But actually, in terms of writing, How you write your language, it is not intuitive to human beings at all to come up with a system where you have a symbol corresponding to isolated sounds. That's not how any writing system begins. If you think about it, if you developed a writing system, then what you would start with is pictures. You would draw a picture of the sun, draw a picture of a woman. But then the next thing is not to immediately go from that to A, B, C, D, E, F, G. If you ask people who are unlettered, so to speak, people where their language hasn't been written yet and they don't have much experience with writing. If you ask them how they divide up the bits of their language, spontaneously, they do it by syllables. So if they've got a word like peccatoribus, they're not going to say, well, it's P-E-C-A. They'll say it's peccatoribus. That's how people think of it. The idea that you would divide it into, say, the word for pig is p And so there's a P and an I and a G is something that only comes along after people have started with the pictures. So imagine you're in Egypt. Imagine you're in Egypt, let's call it about 4,500 years ago. And you've got these hieroglyphics where a lot of what's going on is pictures, a picture of the sun, a picture of a woman. But let's say that you're a busy worker working on one of those big, brutal projects in ancient Egypt, and you don't know the hieroglyphics because you don't have time to learn them, but you'd like to scratch some things on the wall. And you are pretty ingenious. And let's say that, you know, you know that there's a hieroglyphic for snake, and it means, well, big surprise, among other things, snake. And the word for snake in your language begins with N. Well, suppose Somebody apparently came up with this, somebody working under the Egyptians. Suppose you use that snake symbol to mean not the word for snake, but just n. That was an insight. Our first evidence of an alphabet in that sense is these work sites in Egypt about 4,500 years ago. And some people called the Phoenicians pick this up. The Phoenicians were seafaring people. They were business people and they wanted to write things. They weren't writing anything like war and peace, mind you. They were writing business lists and things like that. But they picked up this alphabetical system and they tended to sail around a lot. They were almost compulsive about it. So naturally the Greeks picked it up. And the Greek alphabet is why we have the Roman alphabet that we're so used to. And it was amazing. It was like fire. 
And the Phoenicians spoke a language very similar to Hebrew. And so that's how you get the Hebrew alphabet. And that Hebrew alphabet was similar to the Aramaic alphabet. Aramaic is a language similar to Phoenician and Hebrew. And that Aramaic alphabet, believe it or not, is the basis for the writing systems of India, for the writing systems of Southeast Asia. You know how when you have Thai food, one of the most enjoyable experiences is that if they have Thai on the menu, it looks like little elephants. Well, even that writing system goes back to this Middle East writing system. So uh, now I know you're all thinking, what the hell is he talking about? Well, this is all kind of zeroing in on what our topic is going to be. What are these languages I'm referring to? Phoenician. What's that? Hebrew. Well, you kind of have some idea what that is, but Aramaic, other than that we know the factoid that that's what Jesus spoke. What? What's Aramaic? What are these? These are the Semitic languages. And some of you have asked me to do a show about Semitic. More of you have asked me to do a show about Arabic. Some of you want one about Hebrew. Well, you know, it's time to do a show about Semitic. It is, for about 18 reasons, one of my favorite language families, and I doubt if I'm alone. And what is a Semitic What are we talking about? What's a Semitic language? Well, the hallmark of these languages is the triconsonantal root. That doesn't mean that it'll try any consonant the way some people say, I'm trisexual. I'll try anything. It's not that triconsonantal as in three consonants. And so, for example, in the Hebrew tongue, KTV, if I put an O in between the K and the T, and an eh in between the t and the v, I can say anikotev. That's the Hebrew voice for those of you who've been listening. Anikotev. And that's I write. So kotev, kotev. But if I say wrote, it's katav. So the same kotev, but different vowels in between. And that's the way a Semitic language works. And so, for example, fuel is delek. So d, l, k. Delek. Alone, who cares? But one word for fire is deleka. You have that. The word for a hot guy, apparently, is that the guy is madlik. That's madlik. And so that the l k. And then inflammation, if you've got something kind of disgusting, is a daleket. And so daleket. That triconsonantal root is the heart of what a Semitic language is. It's kind of like our verbs like run and ran, where only the vowel changes. But imagine if we did that to just any word, and we're not talking about just verbs, but nouns. So imagine if the past of of facts was fex, and then the future of it was to fox, and then a fax machine was called a, a mafaxi. That's how these languages work. People actually speak these wonderful languages. That is the Semitic story. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Now, fitting it all in, we have to pull the camera back because Semitic is technically not a family. It is a sub-family. Really, Semitic is one of six in a passel of kittens in a family that's called Afro-Asiatic. And so you have these six sub-families and they're all related, although they're 
quite different. It's kind of like all Europeans are supposedly related technically to Charlemagne. It's almost that kind of relationship. But Semitic is one of the kittens, and then there are five other little kittens. So you've got Semitic with its triconsonantal roots, and then you've got these five others. One of them is Berber. That's a subfamily of Afro-Asiatic. The Berber languages are spoken in North Africa. They are such fun. They have fewer vowels often than just about any languages spoken in the world. Sometimes you don't need them. And so, for example, give is really just (laughs) I swear it's true. Or Fade away, get this, I'm serious. Fade away in one of the Berber languages is and I'm not leaving the vowels out. This is not about the tricontinental root. You really don't need any vowels. And so it's fun to do that. Or irritate, this, I love this one. It's that's and what I'm doing is you have these sounds called stops, bilabial stop, put. I did it with my two labes. You have an alveolar stop. I did it with my alveolar. Never mind. You have a velar stop. Now, it's going further back into the mouth. So from the p to the t to the k. Well, you can go further back. Most of us, you know, we can go further back than the soft palate or it would be hard to eat or do any number of other things. And so if I go further back, it's in the region of the uvula, that little punching bag back there. And that's so. And so irritate is and the is doubled on top of that. Or one more. You made it dirty is that really is it. Love Berber. Anyway, also another one of the subfamilies is Egyptian. And that means that the hieroglyphics were not of Arabic. It was the Egyptian language. Nowadays, you might call it Coptic. Arabic came much, much later. Egyptian is all alone on that branch these days. Then you get into three subfamilies where I'm risking getting too listy, but they deserve to be mentioned because they are all in themselves as fascinating as Semitic and the others. There's a family called Chadic. If you know a Nigerian, if they don't speak Yoruba and they don't speak Igbo, they probably speak Hausa, in addition to the English they're speaking to you and probably other languages. But Hausa is one of the big three, and it used to be a language of kingdoms. And, you know, notice how a language can be spoken by so many people, so important to so many, and be unheard of outside of where it's spoken. But the Chadic family, otherwise, is languages that really, you know, nobody's ever heard of who doesn't speak them. But Hausa is the shop window representative. Then there is a subfamily called Cushitic. And with Cushitic, once again, we haven't heard of most of the languages except Somali. You might guess that in Somalia, they speak a language called Somali, and it's actually one of three languages indigenous to Africa where it's used as what my friend Gaston Doran, in his wonderful new book, which I recommend, Babel, calls very important languages. It's one of these African languages where you wouldn't be surprised to see it on a sign anywhere in the country where almost everybody in the country who has any kind of life outside of their village uses it, where you wouldn't be surprised to be taught in the language in school. There are really only three of those. There's Swahili, there's Somali in Somalia, and then there's Amharic in Ethiopia, which we'll get to. Then the other subfamily is one called Omotic, and really I'm getting too far into the weeds. Omotic languages are absolutely fascinating, and you know, the latest research Research is suggesting that they actually don't belong in Afro-Asiatic at all. Maybe we'll get to Omotic some other day. Frankly, I doubt it. But these are sister sub 
families. And, you know, it is time for a music cue. What do I hear back there? Are you, oh, yeah. <laughs> Those of you of a certain age will probably at least vaguely recognize that vamp. And it is... That's from Free to Be You and Me. And that is currently the hot car, quote unquote, tape. I've been exposing my girls to that one. And it's interesting. Sisters and Brothers and William's Doll have always struck me as the standouts in that score. And quite spontaneously, my girls like those two the best themselves. In any case, for those of you who like sniffing old books, you might know that there's a family that you see in old, brown, smelly books called hematosemitic. Hematosemitic was what Afro-Asiatic used to be called when the idea was that this family was the Semitic languages, the ones spoken in the Middle East, and then the ones spoken by the sons of Ham, i.e. the ones spoken in Africa, and that somehow made a difference because the people there are browner. We we do better than that now, but this is hematosemitic. I'm just old enough to have seen that like on the inside cover of big books about language. Afro-Asiatic. In any case, back to Semitic our Semitic kitten. Where did Semitic start? Where does this family begin? It straddles the Afro and the Asia. You've got languages of the Middle East, like Arabic and Hebrew. Then you've got a whole bunch of them in Ethiopia. We don't hear as much about those. We might not spontaneously think of languages in Ethiopia as related to Hebrew and Arabic for the same reason that people once called Afro-Asiatic, Hamito and Semitic, but very closely related they are. Now, there are kind of three stages in where Semitic is thought to have started. It used to be thought that Semitic must have started in the Middle East just, well, because. because, Why would anything start in Ethiopia where everybody is just so brown? And that was really about as far as it went. It must start in the Middle East. And, you know, you've got, you know, more writing, although Amharic has a very long written tradition. But somehow it must have started in the sand and not with those Negroid individuals over there. So that's stage one. Science develops. And then it was actually thought that Ethiopia was the place where Semitic began because of this. Language is always changing. Drop the language on the ground and conditions will be that it will start splitting into different dialects. And pretty soon the different dialects are different languages. Language is changing all the time. So, for example, I've talked a lot about how many very different dialects of English there are over across the pond. And I've played you samples of, for example, that black country British dialect where you would think that the people were speaking Swedish. That's the way English is over there. Whereas we all know language diversity in the United States, unless you look really closely and you have a guide, is frankly kind of boring. You know, for the most part, we all understand each other. That's because English has been sitting in England for the better part of 2,000 years. And for those of you who are saying, yeah, but I thought it came over in 400 days. No, it, it didn't. That's a whole other story. So let's call at least 2,000 years, whereas, you know, America is 10 minutes old. Now, what that means is that if you are looking at a family of languages, 
if there's one spot where a whole bunch of different languages are concentrated, then that's where the language family began. And the way you know that is because if the languages are all so different, that means that more time has passed than somewhere else where you've just got a few languages. You've got a whole bunch together. That's the hotbed. That's where it started. That's antiquity. That's where the change has been happening for the longest time. So you can place where lots of language families started with that technique. And it used to be that with Semitic, once people took off those Negroid hamato, those people over their glasses, the idea was, well, Semitic must have started in Ethiopia because there are more languages there. And there are a lot of languages there. You can think of it in a very schematic sense, and it's not accurate, as I'll let you know in a second, but you can think Middle East, Arabic, Hebrew, and some whatever, but basically Arabic and Hebrew. Then in Ethiopia, well, and if one digs in, there's Amharic, and then there's Tigrinya, there's Tigray. Those two languages always sound like automobiles to me. Wasn't there some car called El Tigre or something? But they're not cars. They're languages. Then a whole bunch of other languages where if I ran them off, it would be kind of dull because you don't know them unless you're Ethiopian and specifically in Ethiopia speaking them. But a whole bunch. Ethiopia is you know full of very interesting Semitic languages and others. So... There was reason to think, well, it must have actually started in Africa and then crossed over the Red Sea into the Middle East. But actually, these days, the latest research, to my knowledge, the latest research has Semitic actually starting in the Middle East. And not just because of Charlton Heston or something about the Bible, but because actually the truth is there are more languages over there than you might think at first. There used to certainly be more. So this Phoenician, that's gone now. You don't meet a Phoenee, but they had their own language. Canaanite, Ugaritic, these languages one hears about. You may have heard just in passing conversation on some bus of Akkadian. That is the Babylonian language, the Assyrian language. Those were dialects of Akkadian, actually. Those are all gone now, but they used to be there, hotbed of Middle Eastern Semitic languages. And they're more there now than it seems. For example, in Oman and Yemen, there are six varieties of something called South Arabian. And really, those are six completely different languages. For reasons I won't bore you with, I've got a couple of grammatical descriptions of two of them, and they are completely different. And so that's even more diversity over on that side of the Red Sea. And in terms of this diversity in general, you get an indication of where Semitic started in that the languages, even though there are many of them in Ethiopia, are more the same than over, I keep on wanting to say across the channel, and I'm not British, across the Red Sea in the Middle East. For example, Amharic, the word for foot is ugur. I like that sound. It's like what Lucy did when she was worried about, she go, so ugur, that's foot. In Le Tigre, it's ugur. Okay, kind of similar. In Tigrinya, it's ugri. Okay, well, it's different, but not. Then there's another one called Harari, and it's igir. There's one called Chaha, and it's egir. It's all kind of the same. Now, the languages aren't always that similar, but it's very easy to find a word like that. Now, cross the quote-unquote channel, Hebrew for foot, regel, okay, Arabic, rajul. And those are kind of similar, but in Akkadian, it was shepu. In one of those South Arabian languages, it's hiyam. It's like that, like something that a little, a little kid will do to disgust you. So hiyam. And then sokotri, I'm doing that, uvia. sokotri. That's another one of these South Arabian languages. It's hlaf, hlaf. 
Then in Harsusi, another one of those languages, it's gadel. Those are completely different words. So that shows that Semitic hit the ground, quote unquote, in the sand. And then it crossed the Red Sea to Ethiopia and flowered further. It's time for some Michael Yazbek. This is a Broadway musical that is still playing as I speak, The Band's Visit. And it is about people who are Israeli encountering people who are Arabs. It is very touching. This is a song called Welcome to Nowhere about these Arabs thinking that they're arriving in a very exciting town that has a very similar name to the thoroughly, profoundly boring town that they're actually in. This is the wonderful Katerina Lenk singing Welcome to Nowhere. With a P. Where you are, this is not Petartikva. Such a city, nobody knows it. Not a fun, not a art, not a culture. This is Petartikva. With a B. Like it boring, like it barren. Like it bullshit, like it bland. Like it basically bleak and beige and blah, blah, blah. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Arabic. What about Arabic? People are always saying, do Arabic. Okay, I'm going <laughs> to... Do it. Arabic starts as one thing. It's spoken by Bedouins and it spreads around. And when it spreads around, you know it's not going to stay the way that it was because language always changes. And Arabic is spoken across this vast territory. It spread with Islam. So you've got Moroccan, you've got Egyptian, you've got Gulf Arabic, Levantine Arabic, that's Palestinian. You've got Iraqi Arabic, Sudanese, Chadic, and that's not an exhaustive list. So you've got all these different dialects of Arabic. And in each place, the dialect has its own flavor based on what the people who were originally there spoke or still speak. So for example, in Moroccan Arabic, because you still have people speaking Berber, if you are a Berber speaker and you don't have to have vowels, you're going to come up with an Arabic that has fewer vowels than any other Arabic speaker would expect. So Hebrew for I wrote, katavdi. So that's I wrote. Katavdi in, no, always the deep voice, katavdi. In Hebrew, in Moroccan Arabic, that same word is ktept, ktept, ktept. And that's because this is how Arabic is rendered by people speaking a language like Berber, where you can leave out the vowels. But then again, dialect, I'm talking about these dialects of Arabic. But the truth is, a lot of these people can't talk to each other at all. So the word for good, ask a Saudi Arabic speaker what good is. They might tell you that it's zain. Okay. If you ask an Iraqi, they might say khos for good. 
Zain and Chos are not the same word, completely different. If you ask an Egyptian, a word that you might get is Kuwais. Okay, beautiful word, kind of different from Zain. If you ask a Moroccan what good is, well, most spontaneously you're going to get something like Mezian. These are very different dialects, aren't they? The truth is they're not dialects. These are different languages, just like the Romance languages are different languages. Spanish and Portuguese are partially intelligible. Nobody would call them the same language, though. Often what are called dialects are completely separate languages. Same thing with Mandarin, Cantonese, Taiwanese, etc. And what this means is that if you are speaking to an Arab, that person is not only speaking English, but they're bilingual in their Arabic. In their head, all of it may be Arabic, different kinds that can be mixed together. But if you speak standard and you speak Egyptian, you are bilingual. And that is the normal situation. People use the standard informal situations and then the quote unquote dialect in most situations, i.e. real life, which is informal. That's called deglossia. That's tutungzia, deglossia. Very common worldwide. The fact that we have so little of it in English makes a lot of the world seem much more exotic to us linguistically than it really would otherwise. So in Egypt, for example, the word for nose in the Arabic you would learn in a classroom in modern standard Arabic is umph. And tell me that doesn't sound like an elephant's trunk, at least umph, nose. The word that you would learn for nose if your nose was running on your mommy's knee and you're Egyptian is manahir. So that's not just something like anfi like nosy or something like that. It's a completely different word. To see in the standard is ra'a. To see in Egyptian is shaf, completely different. So imagine if we had to write domicile and say domicile in class, but we said house in conversation. Or like, what? what's a parcel? Do you have any parcels? I suppose I do. I don't use the word. I would only use it if I were writing a sign. I have bags and pouches. Well, I don't, I don't think I have any pouches that I would want to talk about. But I have bags, not parcels. Parcel is the high word. Bag is the low word. That's arbiglossia, but it's shallow. It's like, you know, children versus kids. Imagine if that really did permeate the language. And while we're on dialect, we can combine three lessons. Dialect, language always changing, and where Semitic started. Good old Aramaic. What about Aramaic, other than that Jesus spoke it, which is a nice factoid, but you know that's not going to furnish conversation for the rest of the party. The truth is Aramaic is not one thing either. Aramaic is still spoken in bits and pieces in the Middle East, but it's been a long time. And so, of course, the various separate Aramaic-speaking communities, some of them Christian, some of them Muslim, some of them Mondean, They have developed what are now really completely different languages. You can call it Aramaic dialects, but they have names of their own. I would say that if you're a real lumper, there are four Aramaic languages. If you're a splitter, there are about a dozen, and the truth is probably somewhere in between. And Aramaic is an interesting story because now it is, in most of its varieties, about to die out, spoken by scattered communities in the Middle East. And believe it or not, a lot of people in New Jersey, not indigenously, but people who've migrated. You can hear Aramaic on a bus in Paramus if you listen closely. But Aramaic used to be the world's language, depending on what you call world. It was used by the Persians. The Persians didn't use old Persian to rule their empire, Darius and the gang. They used Aramaic. And so Aramaic was the language of Mesopotamia. 
Aramaic was the language that united even people in what's today Persia, and it was used as far east as India. So huge spread. That's why the Aramaic alphabet is the source of the cute little elephant alphabet of Thai, because Aramaic used to be that grand lingua franca. And now it's just like Latin and Greek. You never know what's going to happen over time. It is now this very interesting, but very smallly spoken language. And so it brings me to mind of Bugs Bunny. And this is why. This is Bugs Bunny and the Three Bears, 1944. And Bugs Bunny is kicking it in the bear's house. And he's wearing a robe and he sings this. I'm a king I always kind of like that song, especially because if you want to go take a look at it, and I'm sure so many of you will, you'll find that Carl Stalling, the, the person who did the music for these, the undersung genius, he actually clearly likes that song, does a lot with it in the underscoring. And I wondered many, many, many years ago, well, what is that? And the King for a Day song was a very short-lived pop song of 1928, written by Ted Fiorito. And it actually is not one for the ages. But, you know, I've always kind of liked it for some sick reason. It's kind of like the peach jello of old pop songs. So listen to this. Most versions of it, I'm not sure why most guys would declaim it instead of singing it. But here we actually have Harry Richmond singing this mediocre but somehow haunting song. And it also sounds vaguely Middle Eastern. So I'm trying for a theme here and probably failing. King for a day. Life is but a dream. Make that dream supreme. Your king for a day. Don't forget that castles crumble. Fortune humble, love and love alone is humble, gather flowers while you may, be that happy one, smile up at the sun, your king for a day, gold will change you like Mephisto, remember Love makes you a mountain crystal King for a Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And what about Ethiopia? Because you are wondering. Or if you weren't, you should have been. Because Ethiopia. I mean, it really is a very interesting country. For one thing, never colonized. That's the African nation that was not colonized. The Italians kind of tried and mucked around in there, but you know, people in Ethiopia aren't running around being ruled in Italian. They have their own local language that things are run in, Amharic, which has a long 
noble writing tradition. It starts with kind of the, the Sanskrit or the Latin of Ethiosemitic, as it's called, a language called Ge'ez. And it's one of those things. I feel comfortable saying that you might not know based on the way we tend to categorize and split things up in the world, that the languages of Ethiopia are close relatives of the ones spoken across the Red Sea, like Arabic and Hebrew, but they are. So, for example, let's say you're at a Seder, and you've got the thing called the, the maror, as people say in American English, the maror. Well, that means the bitter. What is it at the Seder? That's the, is that the horseradish? Oh, yeah, because I like that. Yeah, it's brisket, horseradish, maror. Well, bitter in Amharic is Marara, same damn word. Or child in Hebrew is a yelet. Yelet, okay. Well, imagine if you lost the ye, and so you just have led. Then imagine if D did what D often does. Did you hear all those Ds? That was not on purpose. And so, D might become D, and D might become J. That's just what happens. So, D to J, kind of like, what'd you do? What did you do? What'd you do? What'd you do? But the J was not meant to refer to the Hebrew, that was an accident. But what'd you do? Well, that means that if Yelad goes to Led, it might then go to Ludge, Ludge. And child in Amharic is Ludge. So there are all sorts of pairs like that. And in general, in Ethiopia, it's not just, you know, some dialects, as, you know, people would have said way back in the day. You know, Tigrinya, Tigray, you've got this whole bunch of languages, including ones that you've never heard of unless you speak them. And I think some people who speak them haven't heard of them. They're so obscure where you learn all sorts of lessons. And so, for example, there is something. It's called gurage. You could call it a language. You could call it a bunch of dialects. You could call it a bunch of languages. You can't call it anything. There are a bunch of varieties of gurage. And as you go from region to region to region, you have different varieties that are a little bit different from the last one until... The one on one end is so different from the one on the other end that you know you're dealing with different languages, but there was no point where anything became a different language. It's all just kind of gradual. So he thatched a roof. There's something people talk about a lot. He thatched a roof. In one variety of gurage called gogot, he thatched a roof is kuddanam. Okay, fine. Then in the next variety, instead of kuddanam, it's chuddanam. Now, those people can talk to each other. It's just that they're ones who say huh and the other ones say ke. But then when you go from this second one to the third one, it goes from chuddanam to chuddaram. So that's a little more different. And then you go to the next place, and it's chadaram. And so it's not chuddaram, but chadaram. And then you go to the next place, and it's chadara. So the M fell off. Then you go to the next place, and it's chadara. That means that where we started, it was kuddanam. But then where we ended, it's chadara. So that's the difference between, you know, French and Spanish. But it all went very gradually. That's called a dialect continuum, very common worldwide. It's also the way European languages have patterned as well. What's a language? What's a dialect? There's no real answer in terms of mutual intelligibility. German runs into Dutch, or you can think of it as Dutch running into German in the exact same way when you go through the villages. One other little thing about Ethio-Semitic. One of the languages is called Harari. And you never know what you're going to find. There's a little village. It's like the size of a parking lot. It's called Koronmi, tiny little village. And in it, the women speak Harari. And then the men speak a whole different language called Aramo. That's part of that subfamily called Cushitic that Somali is part of. The men speak Aramo. The women speak Harari. And they make do 
and nobody knows why. That's just the way it is. There is wonder in this world. In any case, this is a little tacky, but I just can't help it. If we're talking about black Semitic, and I started out with the musical Kismet, well, there was a fashion for doing all black versions of musicals in the 60s and 70s. And there was an all black kismet. And, you know, something that redeems it is that it was with Eartha Kitt and the costumes were very beautiful. And they wrote a couple of new songs. And one of them is really pretty. It's called Golden Land, Golden Life. It is buried. Talk about the sands of time because Timbuktu didn't get its own cast album. But beautiful song. Listen to this. It's just pretty. Forget what it was from. It's just pretty music. I am going a little long, but Hebrew, good old Hebrew. The fun thing about Hebrew, among many things, is that it permeates Yiddish. So Yiddish is a kind of German with lots and lots of Hebrew. So somebody speaking Yiddish talks about somebody's cute face, and they'll say, <laughs> look at that punum, that punum, and they squeeze, that kind of Mrs. Maisel sort of thing, huh, with that punum, huh? That's my sense of how Philip Roth characters talk or something. But, you know, that's from Hebrew for face, panim. And it gets shortened in the Bible. It's like you don't say little Abner, you say lil Abner. Well, if you're going to talk about the face of darkness, it's not the panim hatahom, it's pnei hatahom. So pnei, like that. So you get that in the Bible. You talk about darkness on the face of the deep. That pnei is the, <laughs> look at that punum. It's the same thing. Or, or like, <laughs> bubala, bubala. buba is doll in Hebrew. Full of that sort of thing. It's these Judeo languages. It's very common in a great many places where Jewish people have made a local language their own. Ladino, that is Spanish with lots of Hebrew. Bukharan, Bukhori, that is Persian with lots of Hebrew. The guy who cuts hair next to the barber chair that I sit in when I get my hair cut, he's Bukharan and I listen to him. He switches between Hebrew and Bukharan and Russian and English and he thinks that's normal. There are times when you want to take a big Nerf bat and bop somebody over the head out of jealousy and frustration. I've never done that with him. I don't think he would find that very amusing. Or you will hear people who are in yeshiva in the United States using so much Hebrew in their English when speaking to each other that you can almost barely follow what they're talking about. That yeshivish is actually another version of this kind of Judeo language. And folks, one more thing. Robot. Vowels between syllables. How does this fit into Semitic? Well, in a vague kind of way, because robot you know, there are people who have said it robot, and I just want to get into that. So robot, robot, why, why are the vowels different? What I mean is this. Listen to this episode of The Twilight Zone, The Lonely. It's 1959. It's actually a very touching episode, but you almost start laughing because of the way they keep saying robot. Listen. Who's Alicia? A robot. She's a woman. Corey, she's a robot. She's a woman. She's gentle and kind. Allenby, she kept me alive. 
Well, if it wasn't for her, I'd have been finished. I'd, I'd have given up. <laughs> What's a robot? Why do they say it that way? And I've seen discussions of this online, and I wanted to help clear it up. Robot comes from a play in 1921 called R.U.R., and it was coined from the Slavic word for work, which is robota. And so robot is not a new word, only the 20s, but robota. Now, we can't know how they said it in the play, but if it's spelled R-O-B-O-T, well, if it's spelled that way and it's a new word, many people, of course, were going to say robot because it's like patriot, idiot, despot, zealot, robot. Perfectly natural. But here's one of those rules of English you don't know. Everybody says English has no grammar. No, there are things that you don't know that must drive people new to the language crazy. Think about this. Patriot, patriotic, not patriotic, patriotic. If you're an idiot, I'm sorry, but that means you're idiotic. If you are a despot, you are despotic. So the uh goes to ah, right? So if you're a robot, then you're robotic, right? Now, when the basic word is just two syllables long, then often that word takes on the ah itself. So patriotic, but nobody says, oh, he's a patriot, or they shouldn't. Or, you know, if somebody's idiotic, you don't say, you're an idiot. You're still an idiot. But notice I said despot, just as many people say despot. And that's because of despotic. Starts as despot, becomes despot because of despotic. And so you have robotic. Pretty soon people are going to start saying robot. That's where robot came from. And so that's what a robot is. Anyway, on language families, I promise I will not be doing shows on every language family. But, you know, damn it, I do have to advertise this, despite the fact that some of you complain that I pushed my books too much on my first shows. But for the great courses, I have just released a whole set on the language families of the world. There's a lecture for each language family, roughly, and I tried to make that fun, and you can tell me if I succeeded. Anyway, back to Kismet. Here's a song that's about dignified ambition. It's about the good side of Nietzsche. It's about what people miss in Kant, and it's just great theater writing. Some of you who know me well have heard me sing this now and then when under the influence of camaraderie, of course, this is from Kismet. This is the olive tree. Why be content with an olive when you could have the tree? That which has lulled you to sleep, fool, has awakened me. Why should I sigh that my lot is my lot, that I can't make it anything more? When this is a lie, an excuse for a fool to snore. I want you can reach us at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com to listen to past shows and subscribe, or just to reach out, go to Slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. Mike Volo is, as always, the editor, and I'm John McWhorter. I've gone a little long, so I can't do my thing of of making an attempt at wit here. So let's just let the end of the song do it. This is Alfred Drake. You are, and oh my friend, the world.